You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Um, welcome, everybody, uh, both here in the room in London and also to our audience online to um, the Humanitarian Policy Group's World Humanitarian Day event for 2017, the impact of attacks against health workers. Um, I'm Christina Bennett. I'm the head of HPG and your chair for today's event. Um, before we get started, could I ask all of you to turn your phones to silent, but please feel free to use them to tweet throughout the event. And the hashtag for today's event is hashtag not a target, capital N, capital A, capital T. You should be able to find it. And I think we also have our, hash, our handles um, on a slide that we'll be putting up later. So from armed conflicts to disasters to pandemics, um, many frontline workers operate in harsh environments. And I know this is not something that is new to any of you. Um, it comes at a high cost to both their physical as well as their psychological well-being. Um, and some have even made the ultimate sacrifice with their lives, as we saw in Syria last weekend, where seven um, workers from the White Helmets Relief Group were killed. Um, and as HPG traditionally does every World Humanitarian Day and ahead of World Humanitarian Day this Saturday, we thought we would both celebrate um, the work of aid workers because aid workers do um, you know, incredible work um, at great personal and professional risk, um, but also reflect and commemorate on those who have risked their lives and, and their well-being um, to, in, in the service of humanitarian action. Um, and today we'd like to focus on healthcare workers in particular, not only because of the large-scale, very violent attacks that we've seen increase over the past months and years um, against healthcare facilities and healthcare workers themselves, but also sort of the, the less visible side of what happens to healthcare workers as they're working day in and day out with communities in crises. Um, and what that does to their psychology, to their emotional well-being, to their, their relationship with their families um, as they spend time in, in crisis-affected communities and then go home where the, the risk of, of attack and violence is still there. Um, so according to the Safeguarding Healthcare Coalition's recent report, Impunity Must End, which um, one of our panelists will be speaking about in more detail in a few minutes, attacks on health workers, including threats, harassment, intimidation, and assaults, have occurred in 23 countries in 2016. Um, and in, according to the Aid in Danger report, um, in the first six months of 2017, um, we've had 62 attacks against health workers across 13 countries. So this is certainly a worrying trend that isn't going away. Um, in addition to the risk of violence of, of health workers, they also risk infection, working in unstable environments, and also lacking basic infrastructure and supplies in the areas where they work. So they're not able to do the jobs they're meant to do. We saw this during the Ebola crisis, for example, where health workers were up to 30 ti 32 times more likely to contract the disease than the general adult population. Similarly, in Syria, where health workers work in besieged conflict areas, they're, they're uh, compelled to set up kind of makeshift healthcare facilities in, in, in basements, in, in you know, dilapidated buildings in order to provide the services they need to, to provide and working in unsafe and unsanitary conditions. Um, 
So, as we pay tribute to humanitarian workers all over the world, and particularly to health workers, I'd like to welcome what we have as a distinguished panel, uh, set of panelists for this discussion. Um, I'm going to begin by introducing Len Rubenstein. Len is online from New York. He is the director of uh, the program in human rights health con the program in human rights, health, and conflict at the Center for Human Rights and Public Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Prior to joining Johns Hopkins in 2009, he was the Jennings Randolph Senior Fellow at the U.S. Institute for Peace, and before that, Executive Director and then President of Physicians for Human Rights, where he engaged in human rights investigations and conflicts throughout the world. He founded and now chairs the Safeguarding Health in Conflict Coalition, a group of humanitarian, human rights, and health organizations seeking to reduce attacks against health workers, patients, facilities, and transport. Next, um, we have Grace Carbo, um, who is there from coming to us from Sierra Leone. She's the operations director for World Vision in Sierra Leone, where she's worked there for nine years. Grace played a pivotal role in the Ebola virus response when she led a safe and dignified burials team in the Bo region. Her team actually conducted over 36,000 burials of both Ebola and non-Ebola-related deaths. Prior to working at World Vision, Grace was a lecturer and then later head of the Department for Development Studies at the Evangelical College of Theology in Sierra Leone. And I also want to call Grace out um, because she is now leading um, World Vision's response to the mudslides in and around Freetown, where 400 people have been killed and 600 people are still missing. And I want to extend a personal and particular thanks to Grace for taking herself away from this response, which we know is so important to be here on our panel today. And maybe she can give us some insights as to how that is going as well. Then we have Marja, uh, Marwa Aljuned who is the medical coordinator assistant for MSF Holland in Sana'a in Yemen, where she's been supporting the medical activities of MSF for the past three years. Prior to this, Marwa was an ER doctor at the Al-Salam Primary Health Care Center, which is one of the MSF-supported hospitals in the southern part of the country. As part of Marwa's current job, she takes care of health staff, um, she collects data from projects, and she meets with other actors and coordinates with other INGOs to facilitate MSF's work. And finally, here in the room, we have Lee Danes, um, who is the executive director of Doctors of the World UK, part of the Médecins du Monde Network, a position he's held since 2012. Previously, Lee was the director of advocacy campaigns and communication for Plan International and the head of corporate and external affairs at the British Red Cross. Lee has worked extensively um, internationally from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe at the headquarters of the ICRC in Geneva and at the Red Cross's permanent mission to the UN in New York. So there we have our panelists, and I'm sure you'll all enjoy what they have to say. Um, what I'm going to do now is sort of have a discussion among the panelists, ask them a bunch of questions, ask them to, to, um, to lend us their expertise and their insight. Um, but I would ask all of you to hold your questions and your, and your own thoughts until we turn to a Q&A, which I'll do in about an hour's time, um, after which we'll wrap things up, and there'll be coffee and tea outside for you um, to, to have and, and to, to have chats with your colleagues over. Um, so, unless there are any questions from anybody, I think we'll just get started. Yeah? Great. Len, maybe I'll first turn to you. Um, you know, according to the report in the Impunity Must End report that was published by Safe, the Safeguarding Healthcare Coalition, attacks on health workers, health facilities, health transport, ambulances has occurred in 23 countries this past year. 
Um, can you talk us through that number and also what the types of attacks look like against health workers? Um, and you know, this seems to me uh, quite quite a worrying trend and, and, and we're seeing already from, from this year's numbers that it's not something that's decreasing. Um, can you just tell us about that trend and if this is something that's, that's ever going to go away? Well, thank you, Christina, and uh, thanks to uh, ODI for hosting this. It's really a privilege to be part of this discussion. I wish I could be there in person. And it's also so appropriate to honor today all the health workers who are working in such difficult, difficult environments and putting their own lives at risk for others. Uh, the last question you asked was about the trends. I think we have to have a little context before I talk about 2016. Uh, it's only in the last few years that this issue has catapulted onto the international agenda. For years, the issue was just ignored, but we have to realize that back in the 1980s, health workers were being killed in El Salvador and Philippines, and in the Bosnia War in the 1990s, more than 100 health workers were killed. In that same decade, in a three-year period, uh, more than 75 health workers were killed in Colombia. Before the Gaza War, uh, two wars in uh, recent years, uh, the, there were more than 100 Palestinian health workers killed. So this is not a new phenomenon. But I would like to share where we are. Uh, as you mentioned, there were 23 countries. I don't know if we have the map to show, but it doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, countries are uh, places where there are conflicts going on. There are very few conflicts in the world where health workers are not under attack. And one thing we have to understand, however, is when we ask whether it's getting better or worse, there is no good data. It's only this year that the World Health Organization is going to launch a project that is going to track attacks. Uh, there are very few data in places like South Sudan and many other African countries where there's war going on. Uh, only in Syria has there been a concerted effort to collect good data on the numbers. And of course, the Syrian numbers are completely stunning. We've never seen anything like the scale and intensity of attacks on uh, healthcare in Syria. But just turning to our report, uh, what we found is that in 10 different countries in the world, hospitals were shelled or bombed. And of course, health workers as well as patients were killed in those attacks. Uh, in 11 countries, health workers have been killed in 20 countries, uh, health workers have been kidnapped, threat, uh, subjected to various forms of violence and intimidation and kidnapping. Uh, in a number of countries, vaccinators have been killed. And just to give you a few numbers, I don't want to dwell on the numbers, but in Afghanistan, the UN reported 73 instances in 2016 of attacks on int or intimidation of health workers. In Syria, Physicians for Human Rights reports 91 health workers killed in 2016. Uh, to report a slightly lower number of 74, uh, but that, uh, that just shows that the methodologies of tracking these attacks need to be further developed. People don't know in the conflict in the occupied Palestinian territories, it's really a low-level conflict now, but in 2016, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society reported more than 150 of its emergency workers were injured. 
So why does this happen? That is the question everybody's asking, and there's not one simple answer. I think it's context-specific, context but there are certain trends that we see. One is that armed groups and governments seek a strategic or military advantage, and a hospital is located at a strategic location, or uh, it's where uh, some groups, armed groups, are have taken over, and instead of taking the necessary precautions to protect civilians in, in that hospital, as is required by international humanitarian law, the hospital is bombed. That's happened frequently in Iraq. Another trend that's extremely disturbing, and there are two sides of this, and very common, we see this all over the world. On the one hand, health workers are punished for providing health care to the enemy. Now, they're guaranteed, as we know, under international humanitarian law, the ability to provide care impartially. But in fact, they're, they're punished. They're attacked, or in some cases, they're prosecuted uh, as a crime of, of helping terrorists. The other side of that coin is that in many places, in Yemen, in, in Afghanistan, in many places, uh, either state forces or armed groups demand priority for their own fighters. And they take over hospitals, demand that health workers give their troops, their cadres, priority. And if they don't, they either arrest or kill or injure those health workers. Those are very important trends. Another trend is utter indifference to the requirements of international law to take precautions uh, against civilian objects and particular health facilities. And we see this in the Saudi coalition bombing in Yemen, where even though they have the coordinates of these hospitals, MSF and other groups share those with the Saudis, they're bombed anyway because they don't take the necessary precautions and bomb indiscriminately. Sometimes the attacks are just a matter of convenience or inconvenience, as the case may be. And we see this all the time at checkpoints and with ambulances, that they don't want to bother to check, as they have a right to do, uh, an ambulance for weapons. And instead, they either shoot at the ambulance or intimidate the health workers. We see this endlessly in the Ukraine. We see this in the West Bank and, and Gaza. And so we have these various uh, motives. And on top of that, we have armed groups who, who are attacking any uh, group, regardless of its health work or any other form of humanitarian aid, because they are humanitarian workers, either because they see them, see them as identified with the West or they're part of a scorched earth uh, military policy, as we see horrifically in South Sudan. So that's an overall, those are the overall trends we see, and it's extremely disturbing. Thanks, thanks for that, Len. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear you. I mean, I was struck in the report by the extent of the intimidation um, of, of healthcare workers, and, and thank you for explaining what the motivation behind some of that intimidation is. Um, and the other thing that sort of shocked me about the report was what's happening on the other side, and the report is quite critical of the international community, and the fact that it's pretty much turning a blind eye to some of these attacks. Um, and member states in particular are really justifying the fact that they can engage in these attacks, not doing very much about it at a, a multilateral level. Can you explain a little bit what this is about and what the solution might be? 
Yes, thank you. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, there was a difference for many, many years to this problem. It wasn't on any screen. It wasn't reported. It wasn't investigated. The UN paid no attention. WHO paid no attention. Um, but then about five years ago, uh, in part for a lot of reasons we can discuss, it started getting attention. So we've gotten gone from indifference to attention. And the next step was condemnation. We had resolutions from the General Assembly of the UN in 2014, then a major resolution in 2016 uh, condemning these attacks and calling for actions to stop them and end the impunity. But now, since 2016, we've had paralysis, complete international paralysis. And that's a product of a lot of international political factors. Russia blocked any effort to have wonderful, detailed recommendations of the Secretary General to implement the 2016 resolution. Uh, it, so those recommendations have never been adopted. He called for a variety of actions by governments to prevent uh, the attacks, reform their laws so health workers are not targeted, reform military practice, reform their investigation accountability procedures. That has completely stalled. They are not doing it, and they are, there's not any accountability even for the steps to increase accountability. So this paralysis there. There remains complete impunity. In part of our report, we looked at accountability, and we looked at 25 cases where there were efforts at accountability. In only five of the 25 was there even any kind of investigation or look at these uh, incidents, and in none of them was the accountability uh, uh, adequate. So. We're in a, a position where there is a road forward, but the paralysis and, and, and reluctance to take any steps, basically for political reasons, has, has stopped uh, any action. We see another example of that in arms sales. We know, for example, in your country, in the UK, they're one of the major suppliers of weapons and, and uh, munitions to Saudi Arabia, and those weapons are being used to bomb hospitals and other civilian objects in Syria, and that has stopped. The United States in the same position. The President of the United States wants to sell more arms to Saudi Arabia. So we have this a problem that there has been rhetoric, there has been a call for action, there has been condemnation, but the action is utterly missing. Thanks very much, Len, for the sobering assessment of what's happening even at the, at the global level. I wanted to turn now to Marwa. Marwa, you are um, working on the front lines now in Yemen. Um, and Len has just now painted a very bleak picture of what's happening to health services in crisis contexts. Can you maybe give us a little bit of a flavor as to what that looks like to you on the ground? How are health services, um, the types of health services that you are meant to be offering, how are they being affected by these attacks, by this intimidation? Is there anything that you can um, point to specifically as, as the impact of these trends on your work? Sorry, Marwa, I don't know if you heard. On the health, on the services in particular, on the health services, what has been the impact of these attacks on health services? Um, actually, from 
Yeah, so actually from the beginning of the war, a lot of uh, health facilities have been uh, destroyed and uh, also the um, infrastructures. Um, a lot of uh, checkpoints, a lot of... Um, uh, so, yeah, so uh, that's, that's lead to... Um, uh, this is uh, lead to, you know, difficult... It's prevent, I mean, to the beneficiaries to get access to the health uh, facilities and also uh, to, uh, it's also difficult to the other actor and health actors to provide the uh, medical assistance and uh, medical and humanitarian assistance to those health facilities. Uh, so, yeah. Thank you. Um, and, you know, you are uh, living and breathing what the UN has called a catastrophic crisis. Um, and you are subject to daily bouts of, of violence. Um, what does it feel like to be somebody who has to focus on work every single day, day in and day out, knowing that outside of, of where you're working, um, you know, there's, there's chaos and knowing that your friends and family are all involved in it as well? Uh, since the world began, we live become a part of daily life. I go every day. Marwa, could I ask you? We're having trouble hearing you. Could I ask you to turn off? Marwa, could I ask you to pause for just a second? No? Can you maybe turn off your video? so that we can hear your voice, um, and maybe that will work a bit better. Could you start again, because we missed the first part of your answer. Okay. Great, that seems clearer. Yeah, just turn and yourself now, off. Yeah, now. go ahead. So, yes, actually, as the belief in such circumstance, it has been here since the stress and tension is become a part of the lifestyle. I go every day to work and know that any either me or my family, my friends may get injured and we not we may not survive. But uh, it keeps me uh, I think uh, but uh, what keeps me working under the circumstances my desire to help my people and try to relieve some of their pain and suffering by delivering uh, medical services and humanitarian assistance to one who needs it, regardless of the political, uh, sectarian, ethnic, uh, or ethical or religious differences. Okay, thanks, Marwa. Is she still there? Yeah. Okay, great, Marwa. Maybe just a, a quick follow-up to that. What, what are some particular ways of coping that you have um, personally to be able to get through through your day and to be able to, to work in, in a focused way and to, to be there to service your patients? Uh, yeah, as I mentioned before, um, uh, I try just to focus on the work because it's, um, I used to I used to live in such circumstances. So uh, seeing um, my people trying to relieve some of their pain and suffering, this is the uh, this is the motivated motivation that's uh, keep me. I mean, uh, doing my work uh, and um, yeah.
Great. Thank you, Marwa. And maybe now I'll, I'll turn to Grace. Grace, during the Ebola crisis, many of those who responded at the community level weren't really tra trained healthcare workers at all. And you yourself only had limited training when you began to lead those teams um, of, for safe burials. How did you feel as someone in that role who was leading, um, you know, providing the frontline response um, for safe burials in such uh, an acute and dire situation? I was saying for me and most of the burial team workers who were not trained health personnel, we were like moved to volunteer to do barriers in order to save the nation because people needed to, to volunteer to do the barriers then. So being a frontline line staff then was not about us, it was not about me, it was about saving lives. We were, we were very clear, we knew that there's a possibility that we might not see the end of the fight against Ebola. We knew there's a possibility that some of us will not be there when it's over, but we needed to make this sacrifice in order to save the entire nation. So it was not about thinking about, how oh, am I going to make it? It's about let's do it and let's do it. A few of us will go down and, and forever we will remember those heroes that went down in the fight to get us where we are today to say Sierra Leone is Ebola free. So yes, as a health worker, it was about saving the nation and about sacrificing. People needed to, and a few of us decided to, to do that. Though it was, it was difficult that at the time we were rejected, we, we, were, we were not accepted, we were misunderstood, but yet we had to do that to save the nation. And that was why we were able to do the barriers. Then though we were not trained, just basic, training but yet that was a high risk area we were able to go out there and then do the safe and dignified barriers in order to ensure that we we are able to bring ebola to an end in Sierra Leone. okay thanks you, you mentioned um a rejection by the community as to the work that you were doing tell us a little bit about that rejection i mean what what was the source of it was it because you were female was it because you were untrained was it the particular work you were doing um, how did you cope with that rejection and, and perhaps even a little bit of, of how you're carrying that, the effects of that into the current work that you're doing with the mudslides? For many reasons, we were rejected. I will talk generally as burial team member, part of the burial team, and also as um, a lady being part of the burial team. Most people reacted that way initially out of fear. Mostly it was out of fear that, oh, being part of the barrier team is a high risk area. And if you are in it and you come interacting with people, you are like danger. So the first thing to do, the first reaction was to reject. We don't want you guys, hey, stay off, keep off. And people were even asked to leave their homes. People lost their families because of that. And then also as a woman, um, in my country, Death is mostly handled by men. It's kind of a taboo for women to be involved in, in barriers. But because we needed to bring the dignified aspect to the barriers, to ensure that women were buried in a dignified manner, women had to step forward and be part of this um, process. So yes, cultural reasons were also attached to this. Being a, a lady and then being involved in barriers was like, it's a no, 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 no. But then we had to do that. And talking about the effects um, of that, like psychologically and moving on, yes, there are a, a lot of effects around that because then you have flashes, 
in your mind when you look at those families crying, especially bearing babies for me was the most difficult part of it. Uh, mostly um, on the fives, it was very difficult. You have those flashes coming back. You see those phases. She buried them. Those families broken, torn apart. Yes, but then the strength that we had to continue to go on was that it was better to still sacrifice and continue this work and save more people than to pull out. So that was. It. And with regards to the the current um, disaster, the land slide. Yes, we've been called upon again. The burial teams are conducting the burials for the um, victims of the of the mud flights, and we're working closely with the government and other partners to ensure that we are able to respond to this um, disaster. Grace, are you experiencing the same type of rejection in your in your current work, or is this a very very different type of situation because it's more of a it's a different type of emergency? So it's a different type of situation now. Let me also hasten to add that, yes, now the burial teams, um, we cannot do an assessment around that, but I can say safely that um, they've been slowly accepted at this point because people now realize the role that they played and how they sacrificed to save the nation. Though, um, from my personal perspective, um, they were not given the kind of attention that they should have received then, as a whole, internationally or wherever. But yes, they have been accepted that they play the key role. And currently, um, the, the, the government supported since then, I still supporting the barrier things have been called upon to conduct these barriers. And there is no resistance. People are, are willing to allow the barrier teams. Some people are even identifying their their loved ones and they are saying we'll allow the barrier teams to bury. We are not taking them home. Some have the options to take them and bury them. So that's a great move to show that Yes, the work of the barrier teams is being accepted now. Great, thank you for that, Grace, and good to know that that is um, that's it's better um, than it was for you during the Ebola crisis. Um, maybe now just to, to come back here to London and to turn to Lee. Um, Lee, you sort of represent the the international NGO. You're an executive director of a large organization. Um, and I know, I'm sure that you know that you have duty of care um, for all of your workers, whether they are health workers or otherwise, whether they're international or local or national. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about what you consider to be good duty of care. What are some of your observations as to what that looks like on the ground? Um, and how can it be improved? I mean, we've just heard from a couple of our panelists that you know, they still very much are coping with lots of different psychological and physical effects. How can we improve their their lives in the work that they're doing. Mm, sure. Hello, everyone. Um, perhaps first then to characterize uh, what we see as threats to healthcare workers. Uh, and we see that in three ways. Firstly, as has been described very clearly, uh, physical threats to healthcare workers. So for example, last year in Syria, six medical units supported by my organization, by Doctors of the World, uh, were attacked. That resulted in the death of 15 healthcare workers and, and 53 uh, patients. Secondly, we see threats to emotional well-being, to, to um, the psychological health uh, of volunteers and staff on, on the front line. It, we ran an Ebola treatment centre uh, in Sierra Leone. It was e extraordinary to me to see really seasoned humanitarian doctors wrestling with the psychological effects of battling this uh, invisible um, um, virus and, and just to note that one of the most important contributions made to defeating an Ebola in Sierra Leone was the work of Grace and, 
her remarkable colleagues. So it's really humbling to be able to thank you in person um, today, Grace, for that uh, really difficult work. But we also see threats to emotional well-being um, uh, among the volunteers, uh, both here in the UK and overseas, who are dealing with cases of extreme trauma and exploitation. For example, in our London clinics, where uh, volunteer healthcare workers are meeting daily with uh, trafficked pregnant women who have no access uh, to healthcare and their cases are extremely difficult to resolve. Um, as something of a bridge, we just a few days ago published the story of a Syrian refugee. He's also a doctor and he's now a volunteer in one of our London clinics. His name is Ahmed and just briefly to say in his own words, I'm a highly qualified medical doctor from Syria but when I was about to complete my specialist training in oncology, I was arrested by government forces. I spent six months in jail where I was tortured, both mentally and physically. I was detained because I was saving lives. Uh, so of course we take duty of care uh, extremely seriously. We have a raft of initiatives um, in place, not least the importance of pre-departure briefings, post-departure briefings, on-site support, access to appropriate counselling provision and services and so on, specialist training for those working with trafficked, exploited, vulnerable women and, and, and so on and so on. I think perhaps what's of, of more interest is what we as organisations should be doing better collaboratively. What could we be doing better um, together um, in a situation that Len described very elegantly as, as, as being a one of paralysis where the international community, amongst politicians where responsibility for these things often ultimately lies, there is uh, no action or the action that is taken is, is ineffectual. But briefly, just the third domain uh, where we see threats to healthcare workers um, is threats to medical impartiality. So right now, uh, if you are a patient in the UK and you go to see a doctor, which you have the right to presu presume is a confidential, private encounter, in fact, our Ministry of the Interior, the Home Office, is able to obtain your information from the National Health Service without your prior consent for immigration enforcement um, purposes. Similarly, our government is extending charging into the national uh, health system and uh, this for us is not a question about uh, eligibility, it's simply the position that healthcare workers are put in by virtue of government immigration policy. So it's a completely different context to Syria, but nonetheless, in our view, it is an as egregious uh, threat to medical impartiality uh, as instrumentalizing healthcare provision would be in a place like Syria. Um, so, so, so these threats uh, uh, are, are really important to us. Um, I manage and run an organisation, as you say. Actually, the reality is it's our volunteers and staff who bear the brunt uh, of those realities uh, day in, day out. And, and I'm sure you know that yesterday a very interesting report was launched as a contribution towards this debate uh, by Humanitarian Outcomes, the aid worker security report. It's an annual report and this year it focuses on the perspectives of perpetrators of violence against aid workers in, in, in general and through first-person interviews with perpetrators of violence against aid workers, including healthcare workers, those perpetrators are saying very clearly, um, we understand your rhetoric of impartiality, neutrality and independence, but actually what we really think is you're either a spy 
or if you're not a spy, you're a profiteer. So I think moving forward, there is something about uh, understanding motivations, as Len uh, touched on, in order to be able to enable us to move forward. So it's, it's really well uh, worth, worth a, a read. Great, thank you. But then on the specific question of duty of care, what do you see is your uh, responsibility as MDM to your staff, um, and particularly as, as health workers, given the motivations, given the politicization that you just talked about, given the fact that although we say that you know the medical profession by nature is, is ethically um, impartial, um, and the humanitarian profession is principled and impartial, um, that, that we're not perceived as such. So how do you mitigate that? What, what, what's to be done? Yes. So uh, to begin at the begin, uh, we, we have to make sure that we uh, recruit, support and train appropriately skilled, qualified and experienced people, that we have the right people in the right place, uh, that we offer the right types of ongoing training and support, including briefing and uh, debriefing, um, that we have the appropriate reading of every security context and those change and shift all the time, of course. And part of that requires us to be good partners of others collaboratively in those situations to make sure we understand the context and how to adapt and, 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 and react. Uh, ultimately, um, and, and there are always things we can learn and always, there are always things that we could do differently and better. And so feedback is in, important when we ask our patients for, for that feedback. Ultimately, of course, we do find ourselves in a situation in relation to acceptance and politicization, as you're touching on, Christina, uh, of some of those states party to the Geneva Conventions who themselves uh, are committing egregious violations of international humanitarian law, which quite legitimately begs the question, well, is any of it valid anymore? How will we ever implement um, effective protection uh, for healthcare workers and how will we ever enable them to have access to populations in need when states who are party to those conventions disregard them, flout them, um, and seemingly there's no impunity or accountability. I think that's something about, uh, of course, intergovernmental political processes. There are organizations mandated to lead us on our behalf uh, to, to, to t try and tackle those difficult questions. But actually, where is the uh, uprising of healthcare workers. Yeah, we're trying, we're making a really limited, modest contribution in the UK to mobilizing health work workers to stand up against compromises to medical impartiality wherever those threats uh, occur. Some organizations are pu pursuing some really helpful, interesting awareness, awareness raising campaigns like Healthcare in Danger. It's a really important contribution. My organization has a campaign called Targets uh, of the World. We don't want to be targets. We're not targets. We're doctors of the world. Uh, and so on. But these are only small, modest contributions to what could and perhaps should be a much wider uprising of healthcare workers saying, enough is enough, we are not a target. But then what does that do? You know, what does the politicization do um, to the morale of, of trained doctors who have taken the Hippocratic Oath, who have you know, accepted their role as being an impartial one? Is the, is the lack of activism due to like a loss of morale when you've got a, a medical, a trained medical doctor having to face these, um, these horrible situations? No, I mean, I think if you're an NH NHS doctor in the UK day in, day out, dealing with the system that you work in, um, no one would, would question uh, your commitment. And I think this creeping, insidious, um, undermining and chipping away of medical impartiality here 
uh, because of government immigration policy is something which is taking people by surprise. I think there are probably many healthcare practitioners in this country who have no idea that going to see a doctor is no longer private uh, or mm. confidential, um, p potentially. Um, I think, no, I think it's, it's one responsibility that we bear as organisations is helping people make those links, bridging those gaps, you know, trying to describe the human impact uh, of what compromises to medical impartiality, threats to healthcare workers, means in reality, um, in, in, in practice. One specific challenge from a UK perspective, I think, is that the whole access to equitable, accessible healthcare is so wrapped up inside politicised rhetoric about managing and controlling migration, stopping people getting in boats, that it's really hard in practice to keep a clear focus on the right to health. Okay, great, thank you. You know, we've talked a lot about um, the challenges, the problems, some of the, you know, some positive trends, some very worrying trends. Um, I want to maybe move maybe to a round, a sort of a quick round of discussion with everybody about what do we do about all of this? And maybe starting with um, Marwa and with Grace, you know, as people who are on the front lines of humanitarian action in these situations, what would be the one thing that you would like to see happen um, within your organization or globally um, to make you feel more safe and secure as frontline health workers and able to do your jobs better. Uh, maybe we'll start uh, with Grace. Thank you very much. Um, one thing I would like to see happen uh -huh. is to is to be in a place where you you are able to sacrifice and you will feel safe doing that. And that is to say, we are able to work with our community people. I'm talking from the background from where I'm coming from. Our community people, citizens, and let them understand the role of health workers. And even those of us who are not health workers, but are willing to be out there to save everyone even in the process of us not being safe we are going to do that we want to see an environment where we feel safe where we are not attacked where we are not called names where we are not spoken to in a demeaning manner so to say so i will recommend that we continue to work government as well as um non-governmental organizations we continue to work because we're doing it with um citizens to ensure they are able to understand because um when people have knowledge about something it will influence their attitude and their behavioral patterns so it's key for us to work on that but also i'd like to bring something in quickly um, around the barrier things now, as a nation, we have um, a database of barrier team members across the country who could take up barriers any day, any time, if we have um, disasters or anything happening like this, but we need the barrier teams. But there is need also to focus on them. Most of um, my colleagues are not well-educated. Some of them dropped out of school. Some of them are need some training so maybe a package can be put aside also to support these teams to get them 
back into the communities and being able to get a form of livelihood, but still remain as standby workers that can be called upon to always come and, and, and support where there is need. So for me, that's what I would, I would like to recommend those two. We continue to work with communities to ensure we have a safe environment for health workers and those who are willing to sacrifice. And we concentrate also on those who have sacrificed the burial team members to ensure that we build their capacity to be able to be ready to support and come back and just sacrifice when, as and when need be. Great, thank you, Grace. Very clear recommendations there. Um, well, why don't we move on um, to Lee and Len, and then maybe we can get Marwa back for a final a final comment on that. Um, maybe starting with Lee, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about um, the various degrees or the various levels of challenges that you face as an international NGO in, in this environment of politicized uh, healthcare and health services. Um, you know, at a global level then, like thinking very big picture now um, and thinking in the realm of the international community, in the multilateral, with the, with, with the multilateral community, you know, what can we, what can be done to make sure that the motivations, to, you know, to, to minimize these, mo these politicized motivations against health workers and to minimize the, viol the, the resulting violence against them so that your organization is able to do the good work it's meant to be doing? Okay, so... Uh it's something about um, the apparently particularly low ebb uh, that the way in which wars are fought now has reached uh, and ending the apparent normalization of violence against healthcare workers in a context where there appears to be very little accountability uh, and no impunity. Secondly, also, I think it's, you know, we have legitimacy as organizations because we have access to people in need, but effectively, often our access is blocked. So in addition to challenging and seeking to end this apparent culture where violence against healthcare workers has been normalized, partly by the activities of some states uh, directly and others, uh, we also have to, to, to keep up momentum to, to get access to those people that need us. How that's done, well, it isn't working right now, some would say. Uh, and I do think it is uh, about organizations coming together, forsaking their brand names, identities, and mandates, perhaps, to, to light a fire, you know, to spark an uprising, including amongst healthcare workers. If we can't stand up for one another, how will we ever move forward? I think there will always be a place for good data, making the case through evidence, but I think it is also now about understanding the, the interests and the incentives that those who perpetrate violence have because they continue uh, to commit those atrocities and to particularly understand the burden that therefore falls on national staff and volunteers who in reality often are the ones who deal with this. I invariably don't. don't. Uh, but I think it is something about lighting fires in a good way. Mm. Okay, no good positive response to that uh, to that question. Um, Maro, I think you're back. Um, I wanted to be able to put this question to you again because I think it's really important to hear from you on this. Um, can you maybe come back yeah. to my question about the one thing that you would do or you would ask from your organization in order for you as a frontline health worker to feel more uh, physically safe, um, psychologically safe, um, and you know more able to do the work that you're meant to be doing? 
So uh, I think that we can, hello, yeah. So I think that we can um, communicate more with the community and also uh, coordination with the other, uh, uh, with the other teams and with teams that we uh, in, uh, that present in the that we are working. Uh, it would be better. It will uh, protect us more, and will uh, feel more safe. So, um, so. Yep, we can hear you. Yeah. So I can share personal um, experience. And, um, so I can share the personal experience and how we. Uh, uh, <laughs> Accident because of the um, the our the the artists in morning shift in the emergency room in one of the hospitals supported by MSF in the south, uh, which is uh, ten minutes from the front line. And I remember that we uh, I still remember that on that day we received more than 30 wounds. We usually receive uh, the wounded from one side in this uh, health center, but on we were uh, receiving wounded from the both sides. Uh, we were overwhelmed and we had uh, to put the wounded on the ground in the corridor and even in the area uh, because we did not have enough in the ER. The uh, ever uh, jumping between patients trying to help them and me and colleagues. So only people uh, came in and pointed their guns on our faces and asked us to stop helping their wounded kids and uh, to leave the hospital. I still remember that day, so uh, how we felt and how uh, frightening that situation was. People and wounded screaming from pain and fear. And they ended uh, when our program coordinator contacted with the community leaders, um, with one of the community leaders so, uh, who took the gunmen out of the health center. Uh, so better communication and coordination between us and the community and the parties will uh, make us feel more safer uh, in the uh, the hospitals that we are working in. Okay, thanks, Marwa, for that anecdote. It really interesting and really interesting that the three of you actually have talked a little bit about how to positively affect um, this this dynamic through more community acceptance, through more uh, livelihood support, through more coordination and, and collaboration in the inter on the international stage um, toward uh, you know confronting the, this problem. Um, but you know, Len, just maybe coming to you for for a final set of comments. You know, a lot of what you said in in the report, or a lot of what your group said in the report, was about a lack of accountability um, and a lack of sticks, if you will, to be able to push states to be accountable for what they're doing um, and for also the commitments that they've signed up to, both in terms of international law, but also Security Council resolutions. Um, you know, in your mind, on the, at a global level, 
what can be done to, to improve that accountability, um, both within the Security Council or, or otherwise? Well, first, I think uh, my colleagues' comments are really important about how you support um, health workers on the ground. And I would add to what they say, uh, this is to donors as well as organizations, that there's just such a dearth of psychosocial report, uh, support for health workers working in these fraud environments. I've talked to dozens of health workers in Syria, and they get salary support, they get supplies, they get a lot of uh, physical or material support, but they don't get psychosocial support, and they're suffering enormously from this. And that is deserved, it's warranted, and it's also critical. So we need to do that. Um, uh, but to get back to your question, I think we need to find concrete ways to put pressure on the international community to live up to its own commitments. And some of those steps are really quite simple. Uh, I mentioned all the commitments that the international community states made taking specific actions. We don't have any evidence that actions are taken. And the only way to, to get them to do it is to shame them. And we, in order to do that, we need, and they're not voluntarily reporting what they're doing as the Secretary General asked them to do. Are they ch changing their laws, stopping criminal prosecutions of health workers for, for impartial behavior, accountability, investigations? They're not doing that. So we need an external entity to do that. And I think what needs to happen is the Human Rights Council needs to have a resolution that the High Commissioner of Human Rights will issue regular reports. What are states doing? And of course, it will also show what states are not doing. And it's not the most powerful mechanism we have, but it's the only one we really got at the moment. And I think that would go a long way to forcing states to take the actions that they have committed to do. These reports should come out annually, who is doing what, they're also, it could also be useful uh, as a model for good practices. That once uh, a government has changed its laws, a government has changed its military doctrines and training, that is a very concrete step. And it's not gonna happen through the Security Council. So we have to find other mechanisms. And that's why I think this, this would move the ball. It's not gonna solve the problem, but it, would, it could move the ball. Okay. Great, thank you. Um, you know, I really enjoyed actually reading the Impunity Must Stop report because it has very specific recommendations in that regard, which I think um, are very well, I don't know, very well taken. Um, so I encourage everybody to take, if you're interested in this topic, to take a look at that report because it does have some very specific asks of the international community as to what can be done. It's on, it's on the web, here it is. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Len. Listen, um, so thanks so much to all four of our panelists for engaging in this discussion with me um, and indulging me in my questions. But what I'd like to do now is to keep you online for a few more minutes and indulge the questions of our audience. Um, we have a great audience here in London and also some people online. Um, so I'd first like to maybe turn to, to our London colleagues um, to see if there are any questions that you have for our, for our panel. And please use a microphone so that our online audience can hear as well. Anybody here have a question? And please introduce yourself when you get the mic. Thanks. Hello. Yes, excellent. Hello, everyone. My name is Marcus Geiser from the International Committee of the Red Cross here in London. I have two questions, maybe one for Marwa, 
uh, with regards to your situation, uh, again, Yemen in an armed conflict, could you allude a little bit more about uh, the challenges that you face as a health worker when engaging with your patients? Uh, our colleague Grace has alluded, has, has developed a little bit uh, on the challenges and also the challenges, of, if I may now say, use the term challenges of, of her work during the Ebola crisis uh, and, and, and with patients. And, and, and again, of course, as a health worker, you have to show a great empathy with your patient for obvious reasons. But does it also sometimes, do you sometimes also get into, a, because we talk about danger to health workers, also, do you sometimes face challenges and even security problems inside your hospitals as you engage with your patients? And then a question for Len about the, the paralysis that you're referring to since 2016, and I suppose you're referring to the UN Security Council 2286, I think it is, and since then not much has happened, and also the commitments. Well, would you somehow think that states, and I think all the states have signed up to the Sustainable Development Goals, that this is kind of a, a new set of commitments that say states have signed up to, that you could make a kind of a reflection that the destruction uh, and attack against health workers, uh, that would be SDG number 16, would actually not be beneficial for SDG, and I don't remember which one exactly now, that would relate to public health. Is there a way to actually name and shame states uh, and to refer to other commitments that they have signed up to? I know ICRC, of course, we know the commitments they've signed up to when they sign up to the Geneva Conventions. But again, let's think about the SDGs as a sort of commitments that states have taken. Great, thanks, Marcus. Maybe we could have one more question before I turn it back over to the panel. Yes, please go ahead. Um, hi, I'm Georgia. I'm a research associate at King's College. Um, this question is mainly directed to Lee. Um, so before you mentioned there's always a place for good data. Um, and when we want to collect some of this data, do you think there generally still is a lack of humanitarian research, like real-time research on the ground, and is this why we're not mainly collecting um, the psychosocial reports that we need of humanitarian workers? Um, is this just a lack of humanitarian researchers on the ground, or do we feel like frontline workers um, aren't trained enough to collect this type of data? Great, why don't I um, ask our panelists to respond to those two questions. Um, Marwa, do you want to start with uh, Marcus's question about, um, I think it was about focused on patient safety um, as well as health worker safety. Do you want to comment on that first? Yeah, so I mentioned something about the challenges. So let me the challenges that the health workers have been facing. The challenges in person. So, health workers have been developed. 
that's when it's getting good. Um, maybe, Len, um, in the meantime, can you uh, perhaps turn to Marcus's question on the, the SDGs? Are they a help in this regard? Well, hello, Marcus, and I also want to salute the work of the ICRC on this problem. It has done remarkable work to bring awareness and to make recommendations that are quite practical about how to solve some of these uh, problems on the ground. Uh, and I agree that we should use every opportunity at our disposal, into, including the SDGs, to hold states accountable for their own commitments. The key to me, however, is to get external reports, particularly from recognized UN agencies, whether it's the Secretary General, OCHA, uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, to have credible reports on what states are doing and not doing. And I think the SDGs are another handle, as well as the Security Council uh, Resolution 2286 commitment. So yes, I think that is a good strategy, I would, but the key is the external reporting. Great, and maybe, Lee, if I could turn to you um, with the question um, from Georgia, was it, at King's College, about the lack of research on the ground um, and but the, the lack of ability, perhaps, to collect the, the, right, the right data. Mm, sure, and I suspect that, that Len would offer you a much more informed uh, answer uh, then I can safe to say that it is our responsibility, of course, to share the data that we have and the testimonies um, that we collect. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm pledging to call Len after this meeting uh, to, to share those things um, with him. Perhaps, but, but perhaps we should give the floor to Len to answer that specifically. Len, do you have any uh, thoughts on that question of research and data collection? Data collection has been a key problem in this area, and that's why five years ago the World Health Assembly mandated the World Health Organization to start to collect and disseminate this data. Um, and that is just starting. Um, and it's a terrific initiative, and it's taken a long time, but we see, see how important uh, that data is. At the moment, we still have incredibly conflicting data. For example, uh, the way organizations collect data tend to be uh, driven by the methodologies that are available. So, for example, in the humanitarian outcomes uh, uh, report that came out this week, it reports there were something like 20 attacks on health, uh, health workers in Syria, whereas Physicians for Human Rights and the WHO uh, reported somewhere between 75 and 110. Well, that's not because anybody did a bad job, but the methodologies have not been consistent. And unless you have a really robust effort to get out to the field to collect the data, we are not going to know. So we're still uh, at the early stages, and we can only be encouraged and support, uh, encouraged by and support the WHO efforts. Great, thank you, Len. Um, I have a, Len, who is that? I have um, a really interesting question um, online here that I'd like to read out to everybody, um, and it's directed at Grace. So Grace, listen up. Um, it's from a woman, sorry, somebody called um, Sonsiamo, Sonsiama Carbo, I don't know if she's a relation, um, in Mozambique, who would like to ask, the work by Grace and her team in Sierra Leone was so risky that it affected their nuclei families. 
as members of stigmatized burial teams. Should there be a policy in place to handle such issues after the crisis is over? Grace, unmute. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Thank you, Tonsiyama um, Kago, for that question. Unfortunately, I'm not aware of any policy in place for, for that. But yes, it did affect our families, and it did stigmatize, as I mentioned, not only us, but also our families, that they are kids of a burial team worker or the husband or wife, kind of. And so <coughs> it was really challenging. Some could not take it. They actually left. Do you think such? So I think it's something also we should. It's something that we should learn from, a lesson learned kind of for the future, that this, this should be put in place. How do we handle those families? How do we work with them? Yeah, it is tough. And whose responsibility would that be, Grace, in your opinion? In my opinion, it will be the responsibility of both government and partners, because government takes the responsibility and the partners also, like NGOs who are working in that area, to like collaborate with government and address that. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and I think now we have Marwa on the telephone, and that's who was dialing in. Marwa, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear clearly. Thank you. Oh, great. <laughs> We've been waiting to hear from you this whole hour, um, and finally we can hear you more yeah. clearly. Why don't you um, take go back to Marcus's question about patient safety and answer that. And then you, know, you were also telling a really interesting story before about um, your, your ER experience. If you might want to recount that as well, because I don't think that came through. Uh, health worker and patient safety uh, and the challenges as I, I heard the question. So I, let me uh, talk in general about the health workers' um, uh, safety and uh, how the, uh, their le uh, life look like. So the health workers have been faced a lot of challenges since the beginning of the war, like any other Yemeni worker. So no salaries in public uh, hospitals have been paid since uh, 10 months ago. A lot of health facilities have been uh, destroyed and uh, cannot help the patients. Uh, the deterioration of the economic uh, situation and lacking of jobs mean they are struggling to live and afford food. The staff are very dedicated and um, despite the destroyed infrastructure, uh, infrastructure and the lack of fuel and through the blocks by checkpoints, so that they face all these challenges every day and continue to run up to, to turn up to the work. Uh, another challenge is when armed people uh, enter the health facility, uh, demand treatment and to retain the staff. Uh, <clears throat> it is not easy work. Uh, in personal, um, at the beginning of the war, I, I, I have to, uh, I have been forced to leave my home for security reasons and uh, travel to my uh, with my family to another favorite city, which is in the south uh, of the country. But uh, my family moved again to the capital because the war started in the city that I, I, uh, we were in. 
what was difficult for me uh, is that I chose to live alone in the South because I started to work with MSF in that city. It was a hard decision. Uh, my whole family weren't convinced and not happy with that. And that was one of the biggest challenges that I have ever faced. Uh, living in very conservative so, uh, society, uh, treating male patients, working with male doctors and nurses, working near to the front line under active fighting and, uh, or airstrikes were, uh, were the, uh, um, <clears throat> the most challenges that I have faced. Great, thank you. Then would you agree with Grace and the question that we had from Mozambique that, you know, psychosocial support also for families um, is really important in addition to health workers themselves and indeed their patients? Uh, you mean for, for families or for the health, uh, health workers? Well, you, you, know, you, were, you were just recounting that story about your own family, and I wonder if there, you know, there is support also required for families who are, who are associated with frontline health workers and all the stigmas that that, um, that, that entails. Yeah, I think social, uh, psychosocial support is very important for, uh, for everyone, especially for the health workers, for families, um, <clears throat> because uh, what we have seen since the beginning of the war is not easy and it's not uh, an easy thing. So um, I would like to see something, some, such activities, uh, especially in Yemen, uh, for, uh, for me, here in personal, I have lost uh, around uh, 13 of my cousins in one day, so, and I keep working every day uh, to help my pupils. So it's not an easy thing, yeah. Great. Thank you. Oh, I think we have another online question. Okay. Hold on just one second. Um, yeah, no, I think we're okay with this question. Um, I don't know, Marwa, we just had a, uh, uh, a question from MSF Yemen, so your own organization, mm -hmm. asking if you could retell your story about working in the hospital and responding to 30 people but then held at gunpoint. Yeah, so... Um I was working in, um, yeah, so I was working in uh, Asalam Hospital, which is uh, one of the hospitals supported by MSF in the South. I remember in August uh, 2015, uh, I was in my morning shift in the emergency room uh, in this hospital that I mentioned before. I remember that uh, we heard clashes and soon uh, we started to receive the wounded. Uh, I still remember that when that day uh, we received more than 30 wounded. Uh, we usually receive uh, wounded from just one uh, one side in that health center, but in that day we were receiving wounded from both sides. Uh, we were overwhelmed and we had to go to the wounded on the ground in the corridor and uh, in the waiting room uh, because we didn't have enough beds. And, uh, uh, we were jumping between patients trying to help them. Um, suddenly, the armed people came in and pointing their guns uh, in our faces and asked us to stop helping their wounded enemy and to leave the hospital. It was a terrible day, but as I mentioned, that uh, uh, our project coordinator contacted with the community leader and uh, urgently uh, he intervened 
and stop beginning uh, out of the health center. It was a terrible day uh, that I wouldn't forget ever. Okay, thanks very much, Marwa, for telling us about that. Um, were there any other questions, both from um, here in London or from our online audience for our panel? Um, I see one here in London, two here and three here in London. Yes, one more round of questions before we close. Go ahead. Hi, um, my name is Hannah. I work at ODI. Uh, I worked on a project that was looking at development finance for mental health and psychosocial support and I just wondered whether financing was a problem in this area particularly because it tends to get eroded in kind of humanitarian situations it's never sort of ring fenced and I just wondered if you could respond to that great thank you maybe we'll take some questions from over here Hi, uh, my name's Marin. I'd like to uh, ask Grace a question. Uh, Grace, as a female health worker, how do you feel that your experience uh, in the field, especially dealing with the Ebola crisis, uh, differed from your male counterparts? Great, thank you. And one more. Thank you. And um, we've heard a little bit about this. Thank you so much for a really fascinating discussion. Um, I work in communications and I've just spent the morning um, poring over copy around how we better prevent crises. Um, and my question was, um, we've had a lot about better data about information about sort of flows of communication, whether the panel, so it's a question for everybody, um, had anything else they would want to say on how we can better forecast risks posed to healthcare workers um, and prepare for them before crises hit. So whether that's conflict or, or pandemics or, or disasters, how can we better prepare for these um, and work with healthcare workers uh, bef before disasters hit? Great, thanks very much. Uh, maybe what I'll do is take um, everybody on the panel and if you could respond to uh, those three questions um, or any of one of those that you'd like to. Um, we had one question on financing for psychosocial support um, and whether it's adequate or it's, it's being eroded. We had a question um, particularly for Grace on um, being a, a female health worker and what, how that difference differs from her male counterparts. Um, and then a, a question for the panel on prevention and um, would data collection help with better forecasting and how? Um, maybe I'll start with Grace since you have uh, a question addressed directly to you. Thank you very much. Um, yes, it was different somehow. On the team, males and females, they do the same thing. They carry out the same jobs. You carry bodies, you bury. But the difference is that for some of the male counterparts, they have been part of barriers before they join the barrier teams. Because from where we're coming from, um, the male do the barriers. And now being a woman, being in the barrier team and actually conducting the barrier, it was different to some Extend because it's a new experience, a new area, actually having to like um, deal directly with the body and then taking it to a cemetery and actually burying. So that was a different catching that it's like the cultural aspect of it. It took time to get over that and adjust, but every other thing was the same. Women were not giving preferential treatment, they did everything together. And also the psychological aspect of it, not being used to that, but you have to do that. But after a while, you know, we are human beings, as you do things, you get 
used to it and then yeah that was it great thank you grace um marwa is there anything you'd like to add on being a female health worker and how that's impacted on you um as opposed to your male counterparts in a place like yemen yeah as a female doctor so i think um you know uh, as yemen, uh, yemen is a very conservative you know culture so um and it's also different from uh, city to city and from governor to governor. So uh, when I, uh, especially after the war, the, the uh, living condition, and especially um, uh, it was very difficult. And also working with the, uh, with images and moving from project to project, uh, it was very hard. And um, I think as a conservative, as Yemen is a conservative, you know, culture and community, uh, being a, a female doctor, working with MSS, traveling from project to project, uh, uh, with, um, without, to, uh, without to have, you know, uh, uh, being accompanied by a male family member, it was really hard for me. And treating male patients, male uh, wounded patients, uh, it was a, um, a challenge for me as a female doctor. Great, thank you. Um, Mar Marwa, maybe just one other question. Did you feel particularly at risk, um, apart from the cultural differences, as being a female worker? About the cultural differences? Now, apart from those, the ones you've described, did you feel particularly at risk or targeted because you were a woman? You are a woman. Yeah, for sure. She, as I told you, not in whole Yemen, but in special areas and special cities, uh, which is uh, very, uh, very conservative. Yeah, uh, it's it's, um, uh, it's very difficult for a female doctor to work in such uh, uh, in such area. Uh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, and so we had also two questions, one on financing and one on data and its role in prevention and forecasting. Um, I don't know, Lee, let's come back to London for a minute. Would you like to take um, any or both of those? Okay, so on the question of better forecasting risks to healthcare workers, which is a really good question, I think. So I could give a management perspective on things like more robust approaches to acceptance and legitimacy and security and personal safety and training. And of course, all of those things are important and valid. But in my organization, the reality is if you are a volunteer healthcare worker today with Doctors of the World Greece, you're providing healthcare to vulnerable, destitute migrants, there is some likelihood that your name, your photograph, your identity will be published by a far right extremist group on a far right extremist website and every day that you travel to the polyclinic poly in some part of Athens you run the very real risk of being physically attacked by going about the business of providing health care so, so perhaps it's a question of how much we can tolerate risk in 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 the real world um, on the question of financing uh, for psychosocial support so um, psychosocial support is made available to, to, to everyone in my organization who might want to or need to avail themselves of that. We try not to assume that that's the kind of support that all people everywhere need or want. Um, and uh, nonetheless, it's made available. Of course, one question will always come back to, is it something donors will pay for? 
but nonetheless, uh, as a matter of principle, um, we try to deliver a good care for the caregivers program. But it's, uh, you illuminate a real challenge. So it's partly a question of mainstreaming. Mm. Thank you. Len, would you like to address either or both of those questions? Well, on the psychosocial support, I think donors could do a much better job when they are supporting health programs and humanitarian providers to make sure that that is an element of the, of the financing. So it shouldn't have it shouldn't be up to Lee and other MSF and other organizations to find the resources to do that from their funding. Uh, so I think uh, that is something for donors to look very closely at uh, at their programs, and there could be a lot of progress in providing that support if if the donors took a close look at it. Uh, on the uh, future risk, as we know, uh, that in all aspects of crises, uh, prediction of risk is extremely difficult. There's been a lot of work done. In this area, I think it's dependent on what we've talked about before today. We need much better quality data to understand the present. And once we understand the present, we'll be much better off in analyzing trends and, and uh, being able to do a somewhat better job uh, of prediction of the kinds of issues that will arise. Great, thank you. Um, and thanks to everybody, um, both our panel um, and of those of you here in the room and online who have been um, active participants in all of this. I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, this is exactly what World Humanitarian Day should be about, a discussion about the possibility, the, the good work and the possibility um, and the positive aspects of aid work, as well as illuminating all of those challenges and commemorating those that have really put their lives at risk. And I think we've really done that with some very rich and real frontline stories, as well as some real guidance as to what we can do at various levels and through various types of organizations um, as we work through these challenges. So thanks very much to everybody. I very much enjoyed this discussion. I hope all of you did too. Um, so the video of the video kind of uh, recording of this will be available online tomorrow. Um, so if you want to check back with anything that anyone said, you can do that after tomorrow. There should be coffee and tea out in the hallway for you to mingle and mix um, after this discussion. And I'd also like to invite you to the World Humanitarian Day Memorial, which is taking place starting at 5 o'clock or 4.30, I think, this afternoon um, at Westminster Abbey. Um, there will be a sort of an even song service at Westminster Abbey commemorating humanitarian workers starting at 4.30, and then a wreath-laying ceremony at the Memorial for Innocent Victims of Oppression, Violence, and War just outside the Abbey. Um, if you would like to attend that, we do have to give you a ticket. I have a stack of them here, so just approach me afterwards and I will hand you a ticket. If you're listening on Online and would like to attend, please see a gentleman called John Nesbitt, who's wearing a maroon tie, who will be at the door of Westminster Abbey, and he will also hand you a ticket because you will need a ticket to get in. So I invite you to join me and other humanitarians in that, um, in that celebration and commemoration. It's always a really lovely event. Um, thanks to everybody, and enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, happy World Humanitarian Day. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>